Okay, well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 7. Psalm 37, we began this psalm a couple of weeks ago, and we'll pick back up where we left off today. Psalm 37, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11 this morning. Psalm 37, verse 1, says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, how it uh, teaches and prepares us for every good work that we need in this life. Lord, it equips us so that the man of God may be complete and perfect for every good deed. Lord, we know that there are many tribulations and trials that we must overcome in this life, and one of those is the presence, Lord, the prosperity, the power Lord, that has been given to the wicked in this life. And Lord, how it is that you call your children to trust in you, Lord, to entrust our lives to him who judges justly, to wait patiently, Lord, for the day in which we will receive the full measure of our salvation, Lord, and enter into our eternal rest. And so, Lord, we pray that we would, Lord, put all of our hope and confidence in you, Lord, that we would Incline ourselves to your providence, Lord, knowing that you are the one ruling and reigning over this world, and that there is not a single person who has ever risen, Lord, to a place of power or prominence apart from your will. But, Lord, you are the one governing, and you are the one caring for your people. And so, Lord, may we not be anxious, and, Lord, may we not be envious of evildoers, but rather, Lord, may we trust in you. So, Lord, we pray that today you would use this word Lord, to build up and strengthen our faith, to sanctify us by the truth, Lord, knowing that your word is truth. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we began this passage a couple of weeks ago where the prophet is teaching concerning the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And again, one of the many tribulations that we are called to endure in this present time, right, the time of our sojourning. We are strangers and aliens on this earth with God, and one of the tribulations we must endure is the presence of the wicked, right? And not just that the wicked are present in this world, but that the wicked are the ones who possess great power and prosperity in this world in contrast to the righteous who are accounted as nothing, right, that we will have our afflictions in this time. And this should not be a surprise to us, seeing that from 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, it says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This present world lies in the power of the evil one, the devil, and then he gives it to his children who rule and reign over this present world. And many of the most powerful people in the world, right? many of those who amass these vast fortunes on the earth are not the godly ones, but rather it is those who are ungodly, the godless. And then they use their power and prosperity not to promote the glory of God and not for the good of man, but rather to commit many sins against God and to promote all manner of evil and wickedness on the earth. And when this happens, and happen it will, what are the righteous to do? Right When it appears from our perception that God favors the wicked over the righteous due to the current circumstances. They have power, we are powerless. They have prosperity, we have afflictions. They are at ease and in comfort, and we have our hardships and sufferings in this life. What are we to do? Well, the prophet is warning us here of sins, temptations, 
that we are going to be tempted to because of this situation. The first we saw last time is that we will fret. Fretting over evildoers. Being anxious, fearful because of the power and prosperity of the wicked. And he says, don't do that. Do not fret because of evildoers. The second is to be envious of them. To think, to think that if we can't beat them, we might as well join them. To think that there's no advantage to living a faithful life. To obeying God and living a godly life because we get nothing from it in this life. They live a sinful life. They have ease and prosperity. So we might as well go and indulge in sin with the wicked because look at what they get in this life. To be envious of them. He says, don't do it. Don't do either of these. right? Because in both cases, it shows we're not living by faith. It is a lack of faith. Fretting or being anxious shows that we have no faith in God. We don't trust in his providence, his sovereignty over this present world. We don't believe that God is ruling this world, or if he is, we don't trust that he knows what he's doing. This is the only reason that we would fret or that we would be anxious. Being envious shows a lack of trust in the day of judgment and a lack of belief in the life to come that there is a reward for the righteous in the life to come, and there is punishment for the wicked in the life to come, right? Well, if we don't believe these things, then of course we'll be envious of them. But if we see their end, then why would we envy them, right? In both cases, lack of faith. So instead of fretting and instead of being envious, we are called to trust in the Lord, to trust in the Lord, to do good, to cultivate faithfulness and to dwell in the land, to patiently wait for God to give us our reward and patiently wait for God to punish the wicked. And while we wait, how are we supposed to live? A godly, faithful life, knowing that in the Lord our service is never going to be in vain. And we must persevere in this way during the time of our sojourning. This is our testing. From our conversion to our death, it is the time of our testing, and we have to be faithful to God, even when it looks like, it appears, that things are not going as planned. They are going as planned, according to God's will. So let's pick up again Psalm 37, and we'll pick up in verse 4 today and go verses 4 through 11. Verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Here is the remedy, the remedy for fretting and the remedy for being envious of evildoers. Delight yourself in the Lord. We are called to delight not in the pleasures of this world, but we are to delight in the world. The delight of God is set in contrast to the vain allurements of this present world. Those things that allure the wicked that they are living for, that they are seeking after right throughout this present time. The ungodly are consumed with the pleasures of this life, with eating, with drinking, with entertainment, right? With all the pleasures that this world has to offer, this is what they live for. They are consumed with these things and they give no thought to the spiritual blessings that are available through Jesus Christ, that we can have through him that God bestows upon his people. This is the problem. When we're fretting and when we're being envious, we're not being spiritually minded. We're not thinking in terms of spiritual blessings, spiritual riches. We're only thinking about this present world. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. It says, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, and he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. And by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Here, specifically in terms of Moses, 
the ungodly would envy Moses, not in his faith, right? not because of his righteousness, not because of his sufferings, but they would envy him because of his upbringing. Right? To have, to be born, to be raised in the house of Pharaoh. To have available to you all of the treasures, all of the riches, all of the pleasures that would be afforded to someone who was a member of the house of Pharaoh. But Moses knew and understood by faith that there were greater pleasures than the pleasures of sin and that there were greater treasures than the treasures of Egypt. And what were the treasures that he desired? What was he looking for? He wanted the eternal spiritual treasures found in Christ. And how many, right? How many of his contemporaries would have considered him to be an utter fool because he abandoned, he left Pharaoh's house and chose instead to go suffer mistreatment with the people of God. But why did he do this? Because he was looking for the reward. Not an earthly reward. He was looking for an heavenly reward. And so God commends him. God considers him wise, while the people of this world would consider him to be a fool. What value is it? Right? What value, what happiness is to be found in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur? Right? That is not a place of happiness. There is no comfort there. There are no pleasures in that place. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, What does a profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? And so here we see, we have this contrast between the vain, fickle, temporary, fleeting joys with which this world is deluded and the true blessings that are enjoyed by the godly. And the blessing, the blessing of the godly is theirs regardless of their circumstances. Whether they have a season of prosperity and happiness and ease, or whether they have a season of poverty, of hardships, of afflictions, of sufferings, right? It doesn't matter. The circumstances of the godly do not change the reality that if we delight in the Lord, he will give us the desire of our heart. That the Lord is our portion, and that regardless of our situation, our lot always has fallen on pleasant places. Psalm 16. Psalm 16, this is what it says concerning our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Psalm 16, verse 1. It says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. There, he says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Right? Well, why is this the case? Right? Is it because Jesus lived a life of ease, of luxury, of comfort and pleasure? No, we know that that wasn't the case. He suffered more than anyone in the history of the world. So how is it that it fell upon him in pleasant places? What was his inheritance? Right? Who was his inheritance? Who was his cup? Who was he looking to? The Lord. The Lord was his portion. And this is true for all of the godly. The godly have as their inheritance, as their heritage, the Lord himself. The Lord is our portion. He gives himself to us. This is what he means in Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. 
Right? Not meaning if we delight ourselves in the Lord, we can ask for millions of dollars and God's going to give that to us. There are those who will twist and corrupt the Bible to promote those kinds of things. That's not what he's talking about here. When we delight in the Lord, what is the desire of our heart? It's to have the Lord. And if that is the desire of our heart, what will the Lord give to us? He will give himself to us. We will receive the Lord. He will be the desire and he will give himself to us. He will give himself to those who seek him, to those who delight in him, to those who seek him as the pearl of great price. This is the treasure that the wicked do not possess and they will never possess. This is where true riches are found. To have God as our God and for we to be his people. For him to be our shepherd and for we to be the sheep of his pasture. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. Ezekiel 37, 24 says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. And they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And I will be, it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Is that not the greatest treasure that we can have? If that statement is true of us, then what can man do to us? They can do nothing to us, right? This is the greatest, is to have God as our portion, to have Him as our inheritance forever. Also, Revelation 21. Revelation 21 The fulfillment of this. Revelation 21, verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is the inheritance that we should desire. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, John 17, verse 3. So if God is our portion, if he is our heritage, then why would we fret over evildoers? Because what can they do to us, right? What can they do? Can they take the Lord away from us? Can they take us away from the Lord, right? They cannot do either one of these things. So what is the worst thing an evildoer can do to us, right? The worst thing they can do is to kill our body, But they cannot take the Lord away from us. They cannot deprive us of his presence. They cannot deprive us of his fellowship. They cannot take his salvation away. The forgiveness of sins, they can't take that away. They cannot take God's blessing away from us. And even if they kill us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And according to the apostle in 2 Corinthians 5.8, that is better by far. So even if they kill us, who still comes out on top? right? We still win. So what can the wicked do to us? They cannot take the Lord away from us. They cannot take our salvation away from us. They cannot take our inheritance away from us. They may be able to upset our lives temporarily, but what is our life? A vapor that appears for a moment and then is gone, right? At most 70 or 80 years. Well, what is that compared to eternity? It's absolutely nothing. So they might be able to upset our lives for a little bit, harass us here and there, But God is our portion. 
regardless of our circumstances. And even if they do the worst to us, which is to kill our body, we still win at the end of the day because we will have the full enjoyment of the Lord. And then one day he'll make them come and bow down before us and they will confess that God has loved us and then they will be cast into the lake of fire. So why would we fret over evildoers? As it says, I, even I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of a man who dies and of a son of man who is made like grass? Isaiah 51 verse 12. No reason then for us to fret over evildoers. Also, why would we be envious of them? Seeing that they don't have true riches. They are bereft of true riches. Their riches, their pleasures are the fleeting pleasures of sin. They are the temporary riches associated with this, with this life, but our riches are eternal. Our pleasures are spiritual and eternal. So if anybody is envying anyone, who should be envious? They ought to be envying us, right? This is the way it ought to be, seeing that we have God as our God and we are his people. But we should never envy the wicked, knowing that even the comforts and pleasures they enjoy are only going to last for a moment. They are the fleeting pleasures of sin. And what pleasure is there in sin even in this life? Even then you're miserable, and even they are miserable as they commit their sins against God, but then their pleasures are soon going to give away to everlasting torment, to everlasting suffering in the lake of fire. So everything in this world is upside down. But eventually, God is going to turn it right side up. And we've got to live right now. We have to have the right perspective. We have to look at things correctly, not backwards as this world does. We have to look at it the right way. And this is why we have the Word of God. It tells us, it's predicting for us future events. What is going to happen? It gives us glimpse into the future, into the day of judgment, into the outcome of both the righteous and the wicked, so that we would set our priorities straight so that we would not be bamboozled by the allurements of this world. Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. Here we have an example. An example. A very memorable example of these things. You can't forget it. Luke 16 verse 19. Right? Could the contrast between these two be any greater in this life and in the life to come? That's the whole point of the parable Jesus is telling. Luke 16, 19. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Okay, so present life, right now, one is living in prosperity, he has ease, joyous living, fine linen, this is what he has. The other is a miserable, wretched creature, so miserable that even dogs are coming to lick his sores to try to give him some comfort in this life. So you could not have two people on different ends of the social spectrum. Okay, then verse 23, now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things? But now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Complete reversal. From this life to the life to come. Right Now, in this life, surely the rich man, he was the envy of many of men. Many people would have said, Ooh, if we could have the life of the rich man, if we could have his wealth, if we could live the way he lives, that would be the life to have. And Lazarus in this life, his life would have been a life of contempt. People would have seen him 
and pitied him and said, we don't want to be like him at all, right? There's nothing further from what we would want to be than Lazarus. But in the life to come, who would everyone envy? Not the rich man, but they would want to be like Lazarus in the life to come, while the rich man is the object of scorn and the object of contempt. This is what is going to happen. That's what the Lord is telling us in this psalm, in Luke chapter 16, in many places in the Bible, it's telling us what's going to happen in the future so that we can prepare ourselves now for what will be revealed then. Right? And even in this life, the pleasures of the wicked, they do not compare to the spiritual blessings enjoyed by the people of God. So we have it better even in this life than they do in terms of the spiritual blessings that we enjoy. So delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We will receive the Lord himself, and he will graciously give to us all things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. It says in Matthew 6, 33. Psalm 37, verse 5. It says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noon day. There he says, commit your way to the Lord, right? Trust in him. This is in this present life. This is during the season of the prosperity of the wicked. While the wicked are ruling the day, while they're living it up, while the righteous are treated like the scum of the earth, we are to continue living a godly life entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly knowing that in due time, God will bring forth our righteousness as the noonday. 1 Peter chapter 2, God will ultimately vindicate his people. And we know this because he has already proven it, established it, this pattern, in the person of Christ. And as it happened to Christ, so it will also be with us. 1 Peter 2, 18 says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So isn't that going to be the case in this present life? In some regard, we are going to do good and we will receive suffering because of it. We will be ridiculed, mocked, scorned, laughed at, uh, maybe imprisoned. People will treat us ill, do these types of things in this life because we want to do what is good and right in the sight of God. Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Okay, now, what did Jesus do when he suffered? Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. When Jesus endured suffering in this life, he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. He knew in due time, God would bring forth his righteousness as the noonday. He knew that God in due time would vindicate him and that God would repay upon his enemies what it is that they deserved. This is how Christ lived. He was unjustly treated, he was scorned, he was ridiculed, he was mocked, right? No one loved him. He did not receive fanfare and adoration from the world. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. Yet he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously, knowing in due time that God the Father would exalt him in the presence of his enemies. And this is how it has to be with us, with the righteous. 
as it was with Christ, so it must be with us. We have to have our sufferings. Is it right that the head would suffer and that the body would go unscathed into the life to come? No. If the head suffers, so must the body. He was ridiculed, he was rejected, so we must also be ridiculed and rejected as well. And while that is happening, we have to continue living a faithful life in this present world, even though we will be in obscurity, even though no one will recognize it, no one cares, right? No one notices, no one praises. We're not going to be on the front page of the New York Times, not that we want to be on the front page of the New York Times or any of those things, right? No one is going to bring us and praise us in this corrupt generation for living a godly life. They're going to be rejected and ridiculed for those things. So very few are going to recognize the beauty, the virtue of living a godly life. Only among the righteous will we receive praise, will we receive some recognition and and appreciation for those things, but in proportion to the world, that's very, very few and far between. And this is because the wicked are not living a righteous life. They're not doing it, but we have to. We have to and continue living a godly life, and while we do, we commit ourselves to the Lord. We trust in the Lord and we wait. And we know that in just a little while, he will do it, right? In just a little bit of time, in due time, in a little while, God will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Now we live a quiet Christian life in obscurity. But in due time, God will bring forth our righteousness and will expose it for all the world to see. And then the wicked, who mocked us and ridiculed us for living a godly life, then they're not going to have anything to say. Then their mouth is going to be shut, and they're going to realize and see that we were not foolish for living a godly life. But they were the ones who were foolish for living a life of sin. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 6. First Peter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you, to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Isn't that true? Isn't the former life, isn't the life before our conversion, wasn't that plenty of time to live in sin? It's plenty of time. We had plenty of time in sin. So why would we go back to those kinds of lives? Why would we want to go live in that way any longer? No, he says, the time, is, it's past. It's sufficient for living like that. So don't do that anymore. In all of this, he says, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Who is surprised? The ungodly. They're surprised. They're running. They're running here and there to commit sins against God in excess, in dissipation, right? Committing many sins against God, and they're surprised. Why don't you want to join in with us? Why don't you want to go get drunk with us? Why don't you want to go commit immorality with us? Right? We're all going out, and we're going to have a good time. Don't you want to come with us? This is what they say. And then when we say no... I don't want to go do that. I don't want to go to those places. I don't want to partake in that kind of lifestyle. They say, what's wrong with you? Right? What, are, what do you think you're better than us? What, oh, you're one of those righteous people, one of those people you think you're better than all of us, and then they malign you. Then they'll mock and say, oh, you're just a hypocrite. Right? You're just a hypocrite. They'll say all those kinds of things. Isn't that what happens in this present world? It is. But eventually, what's God going to do? He's going to bring forth our righteousness as light. And our justice, our judgments, are going to be brought forth as the noonday. God is going to show the whole world on the day of judgment that there is a reward for the righteous. That we were not foolish for living a godly life. Right When they mocked us and ridiculed us for not joining in with them in the life of sin that they're living they're going to have to admit that that was a wise decision and that we did what was right and they are the ones who did what was evil. 
This will all come about on the day of judgment. God will vindicate his people on the day of judgment when he honors and rewards the righteous while putting the wicked, even the wicked rich and the wicked powerful, he's going to put them to open shame and open contempt. And then, as it says in Psalm 58, verse 11, then men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Then they will say that. They don't say that now because they don't believe it. They don't believe that there is a reward for the righteous and they don't believe now that there is a God who's going to judge the earth. But on the day of judgment, then they will recognize it. Then they will say there is a reward for the righteous when it's too late for them and there is a God who judges the earth when he's pronouncing his judgments upon them. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel speaks of this. In Daniel chapter 12, Verse 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is how it will be on the day of resurrection, on the day of judgment. We are to shine like stars now, but people won't recognize it. Only amongst the righteous will it be recognized. But on the day of judgment, in the end, everyone will see it. And God will vindicate us in the sight of all in just a little while. So what do we have to do? We have to wait. We have to trust in the Lord, be patient, wait for God. And while we're waiting, keep living a godly life, a faithful life. Verse 7, Psalm 37, verse 7. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Again, here, rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord, right? Cast yourself upon him. Don't be upset over these things. Don't be in knots. Don't be in turmoil over these things. Rest in the Lord. Right, Trust in the Lord. Wait patiently for the Lord. If we're fretting, and isn't he warning us over and over again? Don't fret, don't fret, don't fret. Because what are we going to be prone to do? What is common to man? Fretting, right? Being anxious. Getting all worked up over all these circumstances that we have no control over. Instead of waiting and trusting in the Lord. Being anxious is the opposite of trusting in God. It is unbelief. It is sin against God. And that's why he's saying, don't do it. Don't do these things. But instead, rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Hebrews chapter 10. Again, this is all over the Bible. It's just over and over and over again because this is the Christian life. This is the Christian life and what we are called to live. It is the life of faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. Hebrews 10, 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith, to the preserving of their soul. Endurance. You have need for endurance. So that having done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have to do the will of God, but you have to endure in doing that and wait to receive your reward. And while we are waiting for the Lord, he says, don't fret. Don't fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Right? We have to have this in our mind. Right? The wicked will have their good things in this life, 
And we, in contrast, will have our sufferings, our hardships in this life. And we cannot judge a man by the prosperity that he has in this life. Right? Even when the wicked prosper, it does not mean that God is for them. It does not mean that God is on their side. This isn't the case at all. It doesn't mean that God has somehow lost control of this world. None of these things are true. We cannot judge a man by his prosperity. So when it happens, when they prosper, we have to rest in the Lord. We just have to rest, wait patiently for God. For just as God will bring forth your righteousness, he will also bring forth their wicked deeds and he will expose them and he will judge them for all eternity. And if a wicked man rises above all others, it is only for the purpose so that God can get greater condemnation on him on the day of judgment. This is the reason that God allows them to rise to their positions and allows them to keep those positions for many years. Do you think that God couldn't kill Nancy Pelosi on the spot? He could do that in an instant. Couldn't he kill any one of the wicked people we have ruling our world? He could do it instantaneously. So why doesn't he do it? So that he can give them greater judgment on the day of judgment. As it says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. God has made everything for its purpose. Even the wicked are made for the day of evil. And what is that day of evil? The day of judgment, not that it's evil from God, but it's going to be evil for them because they're going to receive the judgment of God. Isn't this what the Lord says to Pharaoh in Romans chapter 9, verse 17? The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. For this purpose I raised you up, he says to Pharaoh. Do you think, Pharaoh, that you raised yourself up? Do you think that you rose to this position of preeminence, to this position of greatness in the world on your own, through your own strength, through your own power? No, I raised you up for this. And why did I raise you up to that position? So that I might show my power in you. Not power to save, but power to what? To judge and to destroy. To destroy you, your kingdom, your family, everything that you hold dear, I'm going to destroy it. This is why God allows them to rise up. This is why he allows them to continue day after day after day. So why would we fret seeing that God has made the wicked for the day of judgment? Only if we lack faith. Only if we don't believe it. That's the only reason why we would fret. Only if we don't believe that God is able to make good on his promises. But do we have any evidence in the Bible that God can't fulfill his promises? No, every word of God proves true. Not a single one of his promises has ever failed to be fulfilled. So why would we doubt now that God isn't going to deal with these rascals on the day of judgment? Of course he's going to. So why fret? That's what he's saying. Don't fret over these things. Trust in the Lord. Wait for him. God's going to do it. And God knows how to get his glory better than we do. Right? He knows how to do it. And isn't it true? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Isn't that a statement that people say? Well, this is the way it is with the wicked. The bigger they are, the harder they're going to fall on the day of judgment. Also, notice he says in verse 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Here's another potential sin that we must overcome. Unrighteous, unbridled anger at the prosperity of the wicked that leads us to acts of wrath. We can get so worked up, so consumed, when we see the lack of justice in this present world. Right? And it's right for us to see it. It's right for us to be upset about it. It's right for us to pray to God to do something about it. There's nothing wrong with us appealing to proper authorities and asking them to do something about it. But many times there are going to be injustices committed on the earth and there's never going to be justice given to the righteous. Well, we can't take matters into our own hands. We cannot be consumed with anger and then say, okay, God won't give me justice. The authorities won't give me justice. I'm going to get it myself. I'm going to go and exact vengeance on this man on my own. Isn't this the case in Genesis chapter 34 with Simeon and Levi? 
when their sister Dinah was defiled by Shechem? In their anger, they went and they smote the men, Hamor, Shechem, and the men of the village with vengeance. And did they do it within the proper channels of authority? No, they didn't. They didn't even go through their father. They went around their father. They did not do it in the proper way. They did not cease from anger, and they did not forsake wrath. Instead, they gave their anger full reign to run, and they went and they exacted vengeance according to their own whims, and their vengeance wasn't a just vengeance because they killed everyone in the city, not just the one that committed the crime. They committed it against all of these others. So notice what Jacob says to them in Psalm 49. Psalm, or Genesis 49. Genesis 49, verse 5. Genesis 49, 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Right? What did the oxen have to do with it? They didn't commit a crime, but, but they're, they're doing this to the oxen as well. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. There at the end of his life, when Jacob is blessing his sons, he curses these two because of what they had done earlier. Because in their unrighteous anger, they slew men unjustly. And they committed this great act of violence against the men of the city. They had uncontrolled anger, excessive wrath upon all of them. That's what he's forbidding us from doing, right? We cannot do these things, right? And many times we will see much injustice. And many times we may even be the recipients of injustice. And when that happens, we cannot be overcome with anger and take matters into our own hands. But rather, what do we have to do? Entrust it to the Lord. Entrust it to the Lord and know that he will judge justly. Now, he doesn't mean that we cannot appeal to the authorities, to the proper authorities that God has established on the earth to promote justice. We can use lawful means to get justice in this life. But if we are denied justice from the authorities, then we can't take it into our own hands. We can't be consumed by it. We can't dwell upon it. We can't fret over it and be filled with anger and take wrath for ourselves. Be angry and do not sin. It says in Ephesians 4:26, be angry and do not sin. Right here, he's forbidden unrighteous anger in Psalm 37. There is a righteous anger, such as it says in Psalm 119, verse 53, where it says, burning indignation seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. There is a proper anger, a burning indignation, a righteous zeal when we see God's law being trampled on and when we see people committing sin against God. We can possess that anger as long as it doesn't lead us to sin. Because if it leads us to sin, it's not righteous. It is unrighteous, and the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Also, Romans chapter 12 Romans chapter 12 teaches us that we cannot take vengeance on our own, but rather we have to leave it to God. Romans 12, 17. Here again, he's talking about personal vengeance. He's not talking about going to the police or going to the courts to get justice whenever someone commits a crime. He's talking about if you're denied justice, don't take matters into your own hands. Romans 12, 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So there, we are forbidden from unrighteous anger and from taking vengeance on our own. We have to commit our way to the Lord, knowing that God will be the one who rights all wrongs on the day of judgment. 
So if we are denied justice in this life, then we only have to wait a little while, right? Just a little while, Christ will come, and then he will get justice for us in the life to come. Our vindication comes on the day of judgment. So we have to wait. We have to wait and be faithful to God. So don't be angry. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. He says it leads only to evil doing. Fretting over evildoers, fretting over the wicked, being anxious over them, it does not produce righteousness in us. It only leads to evil doing. It is itself evil, and it commits more evil. It leads to more and more sin. And that's something that we have to understand. Many people treat anxiety or fretting as some minor sin. It's a minor sin, it's an excusable sin, it's a justifiable sin, if it's even a sin at all, right? It's just a personality trait, it's just the way I am, right? I can't help it. But here, according to the Bible, fretting is itself evil. It is disobedience to God. Being anxious is sin against God. And it is a sin that brings about more sin, right? It leads to more and more evil. And what good does it do? Right? What good does it do to be anxious over things that you can't control? How does that help the situation at all? Anxiety is very evil because it shows a complete lack of faith in God. And it comes from our own wicked pride in that we think we know better how to rule the world than God. We know better how to take care of our lives than God does. We know better how to care for our family than God does. We love ourselves, our family, our church, the world. We love everyone more than God does. And if we were in control, then this is what we would do because we're so wise and great. Isn't that arrogant? Isn't that very prideful to think that we know better how to rule the world than God? This isn't the case at all. right? Which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Can we do that? If you can't even do that, then why are you anxious over all these things? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Psalm 37 verse 9 says, For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and he will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Do we believe these truths? Do we believe that evildoers will be cut off? Do we believe that those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land? If we believe those things, then we're not going to fret. We won't be envious of them. We won't have unrighteous anger. We're not going to take matters into our own hands, but we will entrust our vindication to God. That God will vindicate the righteous and God will condemn the wicked according to his own wisdom. And when's it going to happen? Just a little while, he says. Yet a little while. And they are going to be cut off. He's going to be no more. Now, it seems like it's forever. It seems like, we'll pick on Nancy Pelosi again. It seems like that woman has been alive for 500 years, right? Is she ever going to die? But eventually what's going to happen to her? She's going to die. We have to talk about her because uh, Grinchberg died, right? It seemed like she was never going to die, but eventually what happened to old Grinchberg? She croaked, right? She's dead, and now she's gone. We don't have to put up with her anymore. What's going to happen to Pelosi? What's going to happen to Biden? What's going to happen to all of the wicked in just a little while? So yes, it seems like from our perspective, from this life, oh, they're never going to die. They've just been around year after year after year. Right, a nuisance to all of us, bothering us, right, tormenting our conscience, promoting evil in the land. But in just a little while, they're going to die. And then they're going to be no more. We're going to look for them. We're going to say, what happened to old Pelosi? But I can't find her anymore. She's gone. She's not on the TV anymore. She's not doing press conferences. She's not slurring her words anymore. Right? She's gone. She's gone by the way of man. This is the way it will be. Just a little while. So what do we do? We just wait. We wait for the Lord to bring it about. And then when he does, it will be according to his perfect wisdom. Evildoers will be cut off. That they will be cut off shows, for the moment, they're flourishing. For the moment, they have their strength. 
For the moment, they have their vitality. But eventually, they're going to be cut off. And then you're going to look for them, and you won't be able to find them. Just like the tree that grows out there. And then it gets cut down. And then after a time, you forget that there was even a tree there. And this is what will happen to each and every one of them. But those who wait for the Lord, they're going to inherit the land. That the righteous have to wait for the Lord shows that they haven't received everything yet. Right? They're waiting for it. Right? They're waiting for the full and final possession, and they're going to receive it in the future. So again, in all of these things, we see we must judge men, not according to their present condition, but according to their eternal destiny, to what awaits them on the day of judgment. This is the key. Right, to observing and looking at this world in the right lens. We have to judge men not according to what they are today, but according to what they will be in the life to come. But in order to do that, we must have faith. For faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. The conviction of things not seen. We have not seen the final outcome of the righteous and the wicked. But we have to judge men. We have to judge men in this world. We have to determine what is the good life, what is the blessed life, and what is the accursed life, not by what we see today, but by what will be revealed on the day of judgment, right? In that day, right? The conviction of what we have not seen yet. We haven't seen it with our own eyes, but where do we see it? In the word of Christ. And we have to see it by faith in the word of Christ, that there is a day of judgment and that the wicked will be condemned and the righteous will be vindicated. And we even have the rich man and Lazarus, such a clear picture of this, such a personal picture of two people whose outcomes could not be more different. So why would we envy the rich man knowing that he's in a place of torment? Who should we envy? Lazarus, right? That's the one who should be our envy. The wicked strive for this present world. They seek with all of their might to inherit the earth. They want to amass their fortunes, to gather their possessions, their treasures, enjoy all the pleasures of this life. And the righteous, we have to be content with living a simple, quiet, dignified, contented life and wait for God to give us our inheritance in the life to come. And what is the inheritance God will give us, according to here? We're going to get the earth. We will be the ones who inherit the earth, right, for all eternity. Right? The wicked want the earth. They seek to gain the earth in this life, but they're going to lose it all. The righteous, we have to lose our life now, but in the end, we're going to gain everything. Right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Yet a little while. He says, the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. When God cuts him down, it's going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen quickly. It's going to happen unexpectedly. One day he'll be here, and the next day he's going to be gone. Right? Poof. He's gone, and you don't ever see him again. I look carefully for him, but I can't find him. Right? He's not here anymore. And in the life to come, there will be no remembrance of them. Right? No remembrance of them in the way that the wicked are remembered in this present life. Right? We know that most people, most people live, die, and are forgotten. But there are some, a very few, who are remembered in this life. Right? Through memorials, through statues, right? endowments, whatever it is that's named after them. But in the new heavens and new earth, will there be schools built to this person or that person? Will there be endowments with their names on it? Will there be statues to their greatness, to their glory, to their grandeur? All those things will be gone. It will all be burned up, and they will be no more. They will be completely forgotten. But the humble, they will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The humble, not the proud, not the arrogant, not the shrewd, not the good businessman, but the humble man. He's the one that's going to inherit the land. The last shall be first, and the first will be last. Matthew 20, verse 16. We will inherit the land. We will inherit the earth. Now we have to ask, what land is he talking about? 
Is he talking about this present world? Is that what we want? The one that's going to be burned with fire? Or is he talking about something greater? Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 verse 8. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore they were born even of one man, and him as good as dead, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They were not looking for an earthly land. They weren't looking for an inheritance in this life. They were looking for a heavenly, spiritual, eternal country, an eternal land, which is the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. This is the inheritance God will give to his people. That is the land that we will inherit, and then we will dwell there for all eternity with abundant prosperity. Right? Why would God give to us an inheritance on this earth that's going to be destroyed with fire? Right? That's going to be destroyed on the day of judgment. The inheritance of the humble is the heavenly land, the heavenly Canaan. The land that was symbolized by the land of Canaan in the Old Testament, it is the heavenly city. There's no way here that the prophet merely means this present earth. There's no way that the prophet means the land of Israel right over in the Middle East. He cannot because of what we read in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham, the father of the faith, was not looking for an earthly country. He was looking for a heavenly country. He was looking for a heavenly land. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And this he received, not in this life. This is the, what he receives in the life to come. And not only will he receive it, but everyone who longs for the coming of Christ. All who wait for the Lord, all who trust in him, they will receive the same inheritance as Abraham. And when will they receive it? In just a little while. And so what must we do? We have to wait. Wait patiently for the Lord. He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as a light. He's going to do it. It's just a matter of time. So it's not a matter of whether God's going to do it. We know he's going to do it. All that's lacking is just when's it going to happen? And here he tells us in just a little while. Not even a long while. Just a very little bit of time. We'll finish with 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Second Peter 3, verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're looking for, a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. So why would we build our life up here? It, certainly we have to live this life 
and we have to have things to get through it. So there's nothing wrong with using what God gives us to have our life, to be a blessing to our family, to be a blessing to others, and do what is necessary for this life. But why would we have our treasure here? Why would we build our home here knowing that this earth is going to be burned with fire? We need to build our treasure and have our home where our eternity is going to be. Right? And that is in heaven with Christ. Right? That's where our treasure needs to be, there with him. And that's what we need to live for. Not for this present life, but for the life to come, the eternal life that we will have with God for all eternity. The wicked, they don't know any of this. They have no true knowledge. They don't understand true riches, true pleasures. They don't understand true life. They think they do. That's why they won't shut up. They always talk about all these things. But they don't know what they're talking about. But the Bible does. God does. And we have to believe God in his wisdom and live for the life to come. So let us then commit ourselves to him who judges righteously. And while we wait for God to give us our inheritance, continue living a godly life. Continue living a righteous life. Even if we suffer, even if we face persecution, that's okay. Because God will reward us in the end. So let's commit our way to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and, Lord, how it teaches us, Lord, everything that we need, Lord, so that we can endure the time of our suffering, so that we can persevere into the life to come. Lord, we know that we are now presently in the time of our sojourning, that, Lord, we live in this world, but we don't belong to this world. We belong in, a, in another country, Lord, in, in a heavenly kingdom. Lord, that's where our true home is. Yet, Lord, you call us to live here, Lord, for a season. And, Lord, we know that it is a very short season. And so, Father, we pray that we would not be enticed by this present world. Lord, there are so many things that seek to dazzle our eyes. Lord, to gain our attention, our affection. Lord, that we would pursue those things. But Lord, always remind us and teach us that this world is passing away along with its lust. That this present world is, Lord, it, it has an appointment. Lord, a divine appointment that you have established in which you're going to burn it with fire. So Lord, why would we cherish our houses, Lord, our lands, Lord, our possessions, Lord, certainly you give those things to us, and we thank you for that. And Lord, you call us to use them in this life, Lord, for our own good and for the good of our family and the good of others. But Lord, why would we have our hearts set on these things? Lord, knowing that one day they're going to be destroyed with fire. Lord, keep us from the love of riches, Lord, from the love of money, from the love of possessions. Lord, that so intoxicates the people of this world. Lord, keep us from the love of sin. Lord, knowing that all sin is going to be judged on the day of judgment. And Lord, instead we pray that we would, Lord, see things rightly. Lord, that we would by faith see those things that are not yet seen. Lord, the day of judgment. Lord, the eternal blessings that await the righteous. And Lord, the judgments that will come upon the wicked. Lord, so that we would not fret over evildoers and that we would not be envious of them. Lord, that we would instead trust you. Lord, wait for you. Lord, knowing that in due time, you will bring forth our righteousness as light and Lord, our judgments as the noonday. So Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith and Lord, help us. Lord, help our unbelief. Lord, help us to be faithful to you during this time of our sojourning. Lord, to not be caught up with this present world, but Lord, rather to seek first the kingdom of God and to seek your righteousness. So Lord, give us perseverance and endurance and use your word today, Lord, to build us up in our faith so that we might persevere into the life to come. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.